Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalists John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hi, everyone. I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode 28 of our Nature Centered podcast. Today, Pollinators, all about the monarch butterfly and the mason bees and how really important they can be in your backyard, not just to you and your plants, but to your birds, too. Hey, what's bugging you? (laughs) I really hope it's not the pollinators. So stick around for the fun. Absolutely. Brian, it's it's spring and lots of things are happening and we're going to spend today talking about our favorite pollinators, our monarch butterflies and our mason bees. Both of us really have a lot of experience uh, with both of those uh, critters, but we're going to talk about that in a second. But meantime, what's going on in your backyard? Man, I got to tell you, we've been talking some of these different birds showing up with the springtime migration. Um, but even with that, it's been so much fun having all these birds coming in and passing through and trying to get them to my feeders. But before migration was really kicking in, I've talked a little bit about my bluebirds in some of the episodes just previous to this. Really, really had a good time <laughs> with these guys because mom and dad, I, I was feeding them mealworms. I was telling you about this, right? Yeah. yeah. I was feeding them mealworms in a little dish. And every time I'd put the, the mealworms out, I'd whistle a little tune. And it was always the same tune. And they got to the point where within five steps of turning away, they would be at that feeder. So I th- I got to thinking, what if, what if could I end up hand feeding bluebirds? I put the mealworms in my hand. And it, it's really fun and interesting to have live mealworms crawling around in your hand as you sit and wait. Yes, it's <laughs> my daughter, when she did it, she was like, that feels really weird. Um, <laughs> but I put them out and both mom and dad came up and mom kind of looked and she's like, I don't know. That doesn't look like a feeder. But dad, he was brave and he came in and he hopped, <laughs> took him a second, but then he did land on my hand, started eating the mealworms and kind of look up at me like, you okay? <laughs> and, uh, and, well, and they should know you by now. Just, I know they should know me. Come on. <laughs> It was just so exciting to be yeah. able to do that. And they're, they're still coming in. They're still coming in the mealworms. I'll still, when I put them out once or twice a day, I'll do that little whistle tune that I always do. I think you mentioned that they'd already, your youngsters are already fledged out of the nest box. And so the, the adults are probably chasing them all over the neighborhood trying to, to keep them fed at this point. At least dad is. I know mom might actually <laughs> yes. be scouting out a new location for a se- second nesting at this point. But you, when you yeah. whistle, they're coming from a, a potentially a good distance away. So what, what are you whistling? <laughs> Dickie Doodle Dandy or what? (laughs) You can whistle whatever you want, but the key is you make the same sound every time. So, see, um, so this is what I'm trying to whistle. (laughs) I just knew. I can't even whistle right now. (laughs) I can't whistle. Look at that. That's weird. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to do with mine. So. Well, mine haven't fledged it yet. Today is actually banding day. I'm going to go down, oh, and I've been my wife exciting. and I've been yeah, we've been monitoring our our uh, nestlings. Uh, gosh, for the last um, almost two weeks now, and uh, today is the day that they're at that right age. They're still a couple of days away from fledging, so I can get them in and out of the box without having any 
concerns about, you know, uh, having them fledge too early. And uh, so anyway, they're just the right size to band at this point. And the main thing is I can actually tell the males from the females. It's amazing. These little nestlings with these little feathers that are about an inch and a half long, not even half grown probably at this point. Uh, But the male feathers are that bright, brilliant blue and the females are that very, very dull. So I can actually, when I submit my records, my banding records, I'll actually be able to have which one's male and which one's female. And hopefully as the summer and Mm -hmm. certainly next winter come along, we'll be able to tell which ones we banded and raised in our own bird box, nest box. So that's pretty cool. That's yeah. That is very cool. We could talk all day. I mean, we've got, Oriole. I, I, last time we talked, it didn't have any Orioles or hummingbirds yet. I've got both and they're coming to my feeders. Oh, indeed. Yes. Yeah. So lots and lots of things, but we're here to talk pollinators today. That's right. Pollinators, man. You know, what's bugging you? Like I said, in the beginning, well, and I hope it's not pollinators because uh, we have so many actually really neat pollinators. And when you say butterfly, most people are going to think monarch butterflies. Uh, they're just a beautiful black and orange and kind of the, the poster child for butterflies and pollinators, right? Yeah, in the in the butterfly world and the bee world, we got mm-hmm. a lot of different uh, bees that do pollination of flowers. But probably the one is most commonly thought of is the honeybee. Which yes. is kind of an interesting fact because <laughs> it's not a native bee. It was actually brought to this country very, very early. I mean, it was one of the first things to come over from Europe. And it because it's so important, it produces so, uh, I mean, many things that people can use between the honey itself and the wax. If you were in, back in the old early colonial pioneer days, uh, stuff oh, like that, that was wax. incredibly important. So honeybees were incredibly valuable to you at that point. And not to mention the pollination factor. The you know uh, Honeybees are one of the an amazing thing is that people literally are in the, the honeybee business. They have hundreds of hives of honeybees. And if there's an orchard about ready to come into bloom, whether it's an apple orchard or a peach orchard, whatever it might be, and if I'm in that business, I'll load my flatbed mm-hmm. Yep. You know, semi truck full of hives, and I'll drive over to the orchard and park it, and let all those honeybees. And, and you know, I don't know if you go in the store and you uh, you actually uh, you know see the different honeys that are on the shelf. There's the blueberry honey, and there's the wildflower honey, and there's the clover honey. That's how they do it. They're bringing these hives into those fields, and those honeybees are going in and pollinating. And so the 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 person is able, the beekeeper is able to pull out those those frames that have the the honey that was manufactured during the time that those those hives were at the you know orchard or at the clover field or wherever it might be. So that's how they do it. Incredibly valuable in regards to oh. the amount of food. Yes crops that these honeybees pollinate but it is interesting they're not a native bee and to be honest with you we have a number of native bees that do a much better job uh, actually more efficient job at uh, at pollinating different things uh, like our mason bees they're actually a fantastic oh, yes. fruit tree pollinator uh, so we're going to talk about that as we go forward but honeybees probably is the poster child that most people think about In its basic form, pollination is nothing more than, you know, I'm a, I'm a male flower. <laughs> and in my flower, I produce pollen. That's, sorry, I just got a mental <laughs> I know, image. I know. This is awesome. Let's, <laughs> let's run with it. 
and I need to get my pollen from my flower to the female's flower. And that's pollination. When my pollen goes to the female portion of the flower, it starts the whole process for developing the seeds that are going to be coming from that plant or developing the fruits or whatever it might be coming from that plant. So that that act of transferring that little bitty pollen grain from the male part to the female part of the flower mm-hmm. is simply, you know, done by well, insects. Yeah, there are multiple ways it happens, right? Bees and butterflies and and other other uh, insects. But then there's also windborne pollination. And for those of you who suffer from hay fever in the fall, uh, the ragweed uh, that causes the biggest problem for people with allergies in the fall, that's a windborne pollination process. The wind literally blows huge, huge amounts of pollen out of the male flowers and sends it, cast it into the wind. And sooner or later, because of just sheer volume, it ends up hitting another plant and getting on the female portion so that's that's windborne pollination what we're talking about and what is really the most important thing is the insect and butterfly pollination process that goes on in our own yards and in our crop fields and everywhere else oh yeah and really fascinating that 75 percent of flowering plant species actually rely on that mechanical transfer of you know whether it's a mammal a bird or an insect to take that pollen from one one flower to the other. Yeah. That's that amazes me. 75% are relying on someone picking it up and traveling it, taking it yeah. to the other. Yeah, instead of just the wind or or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not like they're getting paid to to, to take the, the pollen from one <laughs> plant to the other. They are actually are getting paid in the form of nectar. They're and they're eating either either they're eating the pollen or in some most cases they're going in and, and they're attracted by the nectar that's in the flower. So that's the payoff for these insects. That's why they go to the flower in the first place. Mm-hmm. And by the way, while I'm in there, all this pollen gets stuck to my body. And then when I go to the next flower, it comes off on that flower and pollinates that plant and starts the whole process for producing fruits and seeds and everything else. There's wild ginger here in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and wild ginger yes. has a little bitty flower that actually never is seen because it's on the ground. It, it's right at the base of the plant. It hides under the, the leaves of the own plant. Yeah. A little bell-shaped flower with little maroon uh, petals on it. And it's a big gaping uh, tubular flower, if you will, rounded tubular flower flower. And it's pollinated by beetles. <laughs> and that's no. why, yeah. So that's why the flower is on the ground because the beetles walk into it, walk around inside, and then walk back out and go to the next one and spread the pollen from one flower to the other. So, you know, a lot of different insects. Uh, what I think we wanted to concentrate today on again is what is the connection between insects, pollinators, if you will, and our birds in our backyard and everything else that's going on in the backyard? What is that connection? <laughs> John, you ask a great question. How does pollination help the birds? I mean, we're all about the birds, right? Yes, of course, it's called nature-centered podcast. So enjoying nature in your backyard and connecting with nature beyond the birds. But pollination actually really does connect back to the birds because as all these insects are on our native plants in our yards, our, our little plants, our, our bushy plants, our trees, as they're helping to pollinate uh, inadvertently since they're going for nectar, right? So they are now a food source for the birds. But then also a little bit more of a stretch for time frame is once we have all of these flowers that are pollinated, like we alluded to, 
those pollinated flowers become seeds and fruits and nuts and all sorts of other foods that the birds also feed on. So a lot of connection there if you just start to think about it's now a big mass biomass of food available in the form of the actual insects and the effects of what pollinating does and creating more food. Yeah, I think, Brian, you and I have both seen this happen over and over again, you know, between what we've done at our own homes, uh, what I did in the past at nature centers, you know, you, you increase that diversity of native plants and man, the number and it's fun. I mean, insects are cool. You know, these different pollinators. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love butterflies? And, and, you know, you start drawing in a lot of different butterflies with all these different plants. I mean, that's just too much fun to to go out there and chase those things around. And then you get all these other, you know, different types of bees and, 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 uh, you know, uh, flying insects and everything else. And it's just, it's just a riot to check all that stuff out. So not only are your birds benefiting that, you know, you're going to benefit too from having these. So let's, we're going to move on and talk a little bit about two of our favorites and probably two of the poster child, you know, the, the monarch butterfly and the mason bees, which you know, Brian and I have really gotten into the mason bee thing in the last couple of years. Oh, our own yes, indeed. So, uh, but, but before let, let's just, just in general, again, we're all about what we can do to help these pollinators and, and encourage more of them in our yard. So what are some of the, the you know, I, I obviously first thing comes to mind, native plants, planting a lot of native plants in my backyard, which I, you know, you and I, again, both have been doing a lot of that that increases because many of these insects are plant specific they're not yes. generalist you know just like the beetle that goes into that uh, that that wild ginger i was talking about that is a specific beetle and those two plants and beetles are matched so you put different pollinating uh, different types of native plants you're going to attract different pollinators that are specific sometimes to those plants so that would be one thing if you want to help encourage some of these pollinators make sure you're planting more native plants And beyond the natives, uh, making sure, and we've talked about this the last few episodes and uh, some of the other episodes as well, is pay attention to pesticides and insecticides. And anything you can do to minimize that in your yard actually is a huge help. Because obviously, if you're using those things, it's going to knock back (laughs) our, our insects. And some of those are our pollinators. So having those native plantings in your yard, you are naturally inviting these pollinators to show up. And I love that butterflies are just so much fun to really pay attention to. And it does help you. The more you can experience butterflies and learn about them, it helps you start to learn more about other insects because the insect world is enormous and so many out there. Uh, Cause John, you talk about the bees. Yeah. And when I, I, every time I talk with folks about bees, generally that first thought is, Mm-mm, no, but it really is when, when it comes to the bees. Unfortunately, there are just a few bees that are aggressive. Otherwise, you have, I don't even know how many numbers of bees that are out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're not aggressive. And so the, those few aggressive stinging bees and wasps give bees and wasps in general a bad name. And it makes people afraid of them. But there are some, like the mason bees, honeybees, they're not very aggressive. Uh, but, and and they're kind of cute. And I would even say some <laughs> of the ones that are labeled aggressive are actually just, they're the type that you get in trouble when you don't see them. You know, the yellow yes. jackets nesting down on the ground, the bald-faced hornet, you know, in the tree above you that you don't see the nest, or you have the paper wasp that's underneath the eaves in the on the side of your house and you don't know that there are. I've had them nest up, and I've got co- coach lights on my garage, and they get mm-hmm. up underneath in those coach lights, and, and you don't see them because of the way the, the, the shape of the of the 
the lantern or the, the lamp is and you, you have to change a light bulb and you reach your hand up there to change that light bulb. It's like, Oh, hello. Wait. Surprise. <laughs> and they're only protecting their homes. So you can't, you can't really blame them. But when, when you get stung, you, you want to blame them. But uh, <laughs> what about the Mason bees? You know, that's been fun. You and I have both played around with Mason bees and, and it's kind of the, the, I won't say the trendy thing right now, but it is kind of a trendy thing. A lot of people have gotten into and Mason bees. And it's not a bad trend. <laughs> you know, it's a great trend, actually. And there's a lot of uh, products out there that cater to helping you become a Mason bee landlord. You know, you can get different types of things that they will be able to nest in. And we'll talk about that in just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. But they cater to them. And, and you and I, Brian, tried those in the last couple of years. And how much fun to literally have success with watching Mason bees coming to these little nesting uh, boxes and things that we have that you can put up and, and uh, watch them coming and going. It's, it's really very, very cool. I love my little nest tubes because I love to be able to, what well, number one, I know I'm helping them out. I'm helping to increase the population of Mason bees in my yard and in my neighborhood. Uh, so just personally, that's really fun. Uh, but I can just think right now, people are, Oh, you're talking about bees. <laughs> I do not want to promote bees in my yard. Uh, you know, maybe you know someone who has honeybees and they take care of hives, and but you never would want to do that, and that's okay. Uh, but mason bees, they're so docile, and they are what we call a solitary bee, where they're not a colony nester like a, a honeybee, and so they just buzz around, they do their thing, but you can actually stand right up next to them, you can try to get them to land on your hand. And they're just so docile. And as long as you're not aggressive towards them or squishing them or something, they're not going to be mean. So, yeah. So what these bees are really doing is, you know, all that pollen we were talking about and all those flowers, those, you know, literally hundreds of flowers that they're pollinating, they're bringing that pollen back to their little tube. And they're taking that pollen and they're making it into a little ball and stuffing it in the back of that tube. And when they get enough of it made, makes makes dozens of trips to get a big enough ball. And then they lay one egg. And the egg gets sealed off with a little mud wall. And then they go out and they get another bunch of pollen and they make another one until they repeat that over and over again, three to five times per tube. And each one of those little little eggs hatches out and the little larva's got all that pollen to sit there and chew down on and grow up into a big boy, <laughs> you know, larva. And it pupates into a cocoon and overwinters as a cocoon and then comes out next spring as an adult, which is way cool. And isn't that why they call them Mason bees? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're the blue collar bees. Uh, you know, they're like the Masons, that, you know, Masons are the ones that traditionally build with, you know, bricks and mortar and block and that type of thing. And then there's like carpenter bees, which, you know, are the bees that bore into wood and lay there. So we've got the blue collar bee group here. And you can actually see the little pollen that they, they have hairs on their belly that they, they kind of stick the pollen into. And uh, it's way cool. You, you know, they're moving pretty fast, but you can actually see it. Pretty cool. And there are different kinds, John, like you're alluding to. There are plastic tubes. There are paper tubes there are bamboo tubes that you can use and different diameters help attract different solitary bees well the mason bees generally at many of the wildbirds unlimited stores you can buy mason bee tube houses and it just has a bunch of these tubes bundled together there are like 140 species of mason bees throughout north america 
So pretty much anywhere anyone is listening, you have probably at least one species of mason bee in your area. So the ones here, all we do, I just put out tubes and they showed up. There are some companies where you can buy the bees where they're still in a little cocoon so that when you put out your tubes, you can put out those little cocoons and you've introduced the bees and you'll have the bees for your native area. 1,600 to 2,400 blossoms a day for a mason bee. An amazing, and this, this is a bee that's the size of a fly, okay? And it's hitting 20 up to 2,400 flowers in a day, which is pretty amazing. And here's the kicker. They're so efficient, they're actually pollinating at least 90% of those flowers. goes without saying when you say monarchs you say milkweed when you say milkweed you say monarchs they just are so tied tied together and what a absolutely gorgeous and cool insect that is uh, the monarch butterfly monarch will lay eggs on a milkweed plant when that little egg hatches you have a itty bitty teeny caterpillar that starts eating on leaves and then as it and then it grows and which those leaves if anything else ate on them there's actually one there's a beetle that can eat on it too but there are very few things that can eat milkweed because of its toxicity it has a high alkaloid content and and uh, when you eat on it you're not going to do very well uh monarchs are able to (laughs) tolerate that and not only do they tolerate it they use it to their advantage because they accumulate those alkaloids in their body and if you've ever seen a I've actually seen video of this. It's pretty cool. Like I watched a blue jay on a video come up and grab a monarch caterpillar and and swallow it. And, and within just a little bit of time, just a few seconds, it came right back up. Because uh, That's pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, they, can't, they cannot tolerate it. And so birds learn very quickly those bright colored caterpillars and those bright colored. And, and, and that toxicity remains when they pupate into the adult butterfly. And they remain toxic too. Which that is fascinating that going from a caterpillar, that that toxicity in the, in the caterpillar's blood, if you will, does transfer to the butterfly. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. And then it protects the butterflies as an overall species, you know, because if you're the one that got eaten, it doesn't help you. But... <laughs> that's right. It, it's, it's the, the survival of the volume, the, 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 right. yeah, the huge You're numbers. sacrificing yourself for the good of the many. It's the collective. The Borg. (laughs) (laughs) So the caterpillars are not destroying the plant. The monarchs are getting the food from eating the leaves. And then as they start to pupate into adult butterflies, that milkweed is going to flower. And then the adult butterflies come and feed on that nectar as well as other butterflies. And then it will go to seed in the fall. So it's just keeps the whole life cycle going. Exactly right. Fascinating relationship there. Yeah. And talk about life cycle. Man, the monarch butterfly is such a cool insect in the sense of there are not many insects that migrate. You know, most insects live their life in a very small area. They, they you know, come and they go and they don't go anywhere. Uh, monarchs are amazing as a butterfly. They will travel 1,200, even almost 3,000 miles, depending on what part of the country, uh, in a migration every fall to go to the coastal areas of Mexico, where they overwinter in these big, massive colonies. 
If you've never seen a picture of this, just do a Google for, uh, you know, monarch overwintering. And hopefully you'll get to see a pictures where these trees along the, the mountainous coastal mountains of, of Mexico and actually California, there's actually a Western variety of the monarch. And then there's the Eastern variety, the Western variety, the monarch go to the coastal mountains in uh, California and Baja. And they just congregate in these massive, massive numbers in these trees. And they, the photos are just thousands of monarchs hanging on each other, dripping, you know, coming down like big, long sheets coming down from these trees. It's just almost amazing. like the trees are have beards, right? Yeah. <laughs> beards of monarchs. Hanging yeah. On. So it takes and, and, and that one generation, that last generation, typically these guys only live, mm -hmm. you know, a short period of time. But that last generation can actually make about six to eight months. They do the migration all the way down to Mexico, the eastern population, or to Baja and, and, and the California population. And then they, they actually start back. They lay a batch of eggs and die. But they're not all the way back to where oh gosh no they're they not even there you know they're just yeah. they're just starting out basically that next generation then makes the route even farther north they lay eggs that next generation goes farther north it takes you know multiple generations mm -hmm. to do it's this. like three to five generations yeah. just to go from the wintering ground to that final summering ground with their final generation just this summer well, then in the fall, migrate back to the wintering grounds. So it's this big, long circle of migration back and forth. <laughs> and most of them have never been there before. This is totally instinctual. Yeah. They're heading someplace they've never been to. So as you can tell, guys, <laughs> Brian and I are totally geeked out about monarchs. <laughs> and and if, you, if you look into them, <clears throat> you will be too. Unfortunately, one of the things that we have to share with everybody is that monarch populations really need our help. Uh, this is something that you need to yes, think about helping out and, and by mainly planting milkweed. Uh, what's happening is the populations have crashed fairly significantly. A uh, lot of different reasons for it. Yes, some of it has to do with the, with the pesticides and the amount of pesticides that we're using. A lot of it has to do with habitat. You know, our modern farming techniques are very clean farming. You used to have fence rows that have a lot of milkweed. So as these, as these, uh, the, the, the milkweed that they need to feed on and other flowers that they need to feed on just simply aren't there anymore. So there are a lot of different reasons, but unfortunately the population of the Western monarch in, in California is in dire, dire situation right now. Uh, there used to be millions, literally, uh, I hate to say, but the survey, and there's a, there's a citizen science, about 100 people to go out and survey about 250, I'm sorry, about 250 sites across that area. They found less than 2,000 total individuals of the Western Monarch last, last year when they did this survey this winter. So um, that is incredibly serious. And so it's getting scary. They need our help. And the Eastern population is, but it's probably dropped about 80% or more. So we really, really can make a difference in our own yards by just we can some habitat planting of some milkweed and and encouraging other people in other places to to leave habitat alone, leave those milkweed plants standing, uh, and and really help with those native plants for them. All right, Brian. Well, I think I think we have <laughs> covered the bees and the birds and the butterflies and the pollinators and covered everything as much as we can for today. Uh, so I think it's time for us to hit the trail and look at what we're going to be doing next week. 
Well, on behalf of Wild Birds Unlimited, we thank you for joining us for this portion of Nature Centered, all about the pollinators, monarchs, and mason bees. So please rate and review us wherever you listen, because we'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah, and join us next time. We're actually, you know, Father's Day is coming, so we're kind of thinking about talking about what all those different bird fathers do in regards to helping out with uh, nesting duties and taking care of their young. So it's all across the board. So until then, we're going to let nature be our guide. So please take care and be safe. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered. <laughs>